This is the end of the retreat and the beginning of our, I know I heard this, oh, I don't want to go. Uh, Bobby and Praise Team, thank you very much for your selections and for your good words. Uh, I felt very refreshed. Bobby, are you here? Or maybe not. Um, thank you very much. This is so wonderful. I felt really restored and refreshed. Um, I'm the primary worship leader at church, so it's nice to be led and just kind of relax. So it's, it's wonderful. Um, I want to start off this morning. Um, we'll be celebrating communion in a little bit. We have a couple of stations. You know, I'll give you some um, logistical instructions as we get closer to it. Um, but what I'd like to do is um, start us off by just kind of setting our minds and hearts to hear just a final word from God as we make this transition. And Bobby said it well, reminding us that we are, we have been on retreat and now we're ready to move back into the world in this rhythm. So what we're trying to do all weekend is help us to establish a rhythm so that as we're in the world, we don't become of the world because that's Jesus word to us, isn't it? You are, in terms of identity, you are in the world, location-wise, but you're not of the world, identity, because you belong to Jesus Christ. Chola is so much of our life, we are going so quickly, so fast, that life speeds by, and we don't live it on purpose. We don't live it with intention. We live in a flurry and in a blur, and... Um, I was talking to Pastor Dave last night and just kind of debriefing last night. Um, He said that something like uh, those of us who are a little older appreciated what we did last night. But for others, it was like it's such a different experience of a Saturday night retreat experience. And only, you know, the high point kind of thing. So um, as we talked about, we realized that's part of what we built into this weekend. We wanted to have wanted to have some creative tension because, again, what we're trying to do is establish not just um, an experience here, but a mindset that I believe very much reflects the mind of Christ for us to be always rooted in, abiding in Christ, even when we're changing diapers, moms, even when we're dealing with screaming kids, even when we're reckoning with uh, teenagers who are in our face, 10-year-olds who act like 16-year-olds, four-year-olds who act like 13-year-olds. Everything in our world is against us. And do you know that, uh, as I was thinking about the children, um, I so appreciate the children's ministry. The primary way, place of discipleship for children is not in church. It's in your homes. All that they'll learn about life, about being a man or woman about how to treat a husband and wife, how to treat children, how to treat others, how to live as families in the world for Jesus' sake. All of that takes place in the home. So it's so important, so important that as parents, and even if we're not parents, as aunties and uncles in the community of faith, all of us have an influence in these children. But that's why it's so important, imperative for our life in Christ to be rooted and anchored in this 
centeredness in Christ and abiding in him so that we will have words and a life because it's really more who we are than what we say or do. Because who we are, from who we are, issues our actions and our words. So it's so critical for us to develop this life. I want to read from Psalm 27 as a beginning point. Just a few words. Each morning uh, when I begin my time of prayer, I begin with these words. One thing I ask of the Lord, this alone do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, to behold him. As we sang in that first song, I long to live in your house, O Lord, and to be in his presence and to receive his garland of praise and affirmation. God longs to give more of himself to us. If only we'll open ourselves to receive that. More of him, less of us. Let's pray. This is our final session, Lord. We thank you for this good time we've had to be together on retreat, away from the world. And now we long for one final word from you, that you continue the process of teaching and forming in us your life to equip us so that we may go back into the world to engage it for Jesus' sake. And I pray that what we've done this weekend might be part of what you're doing in us individually as families and community groups, and as a wider church, that we long to be light in the world, but together. And as you reminded us in your gospel, you said, this is how the world's going to know that you belong to me. It's by your love for one another. And I thank you for the joy of being here amongst these brothers and sisters in Harvest Community Church. I have been so encouraged. My soul has been refreshed with a picture of what the church is to be. And I, I bless you for these dear ones, for Pastor Dave and the other pastors, and for the whole church family that expresses and exhibits the diversity and the unity in the Holy Spirit to be a people as we've heard from the children's ministry, to be a royal priesthood, a chosen, set-apart people, a kingdom of priests that we might declare the good news of you, Lord Jesus, you who call us out of darkness into your marvelous light. So in these final moments, as we reflect on the return of the prodigal son, as we reflect on what it means for us to live in the world and not be of it, as we receive the gifts of the bread and the cup in a few moments, to be strengthened by this meal you left us. So, Lord, we ask that you be here, and that we would indeed taste and see that you are good. We bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to flash on the screen, if we could, the uh, portrait of 
Rembrandt's, this is a portrait of uh, the return of the prodigal son. Um, Rembrandt, you know, is a great Dutch painter. This hangs in the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia. And um, this much has been made of this painting. Um, and art critics have for years um, used this as a point of reflection and uh, um, of um, writing. But um, a few things to note. Um, and this, is, this painting was done when Rembrandt was in his later years, close to his death. By contrast, um, there is a pencil uh, portrait of him. It's a self-portrait. People think that this is a self-portrait of Rembrandt in his later years, close to his death, after he's lived a long and somewhat profligate and sultry life. Uh, he was born in the church, but there's this portrait earlier, a pencil drawing, that depicts him as this young, lustful, greedy, arrogant young man. And that's early on in his life. And if you look at his, his life history, you'll find that he is one that actually lived the life of the younger son in this prodigal son story. But here, there's a couple of things that he, that art critics have said that he is trying to express. One is the son, the younger son, obviously in rags, um, Rembrandt gained a fortune, um, spent a fortune, and lost a fortune. He had much tragedy in his life. He was married three times. Um, the, his first wife died, and along with them, children. Uh, his second wife, um, he married, and uh, she had a son, I think, and a daughter. Um, but his wife, that second wife, wife had some great mental illness, was uh, uh, put into a mental institution. And, um, and then he had a third wife. But even those, the third, uh, product of that third marriage, children died. So he experienced great grief. And one really interesting uh, story is that he had, um, his first marriage had a daughter named Cecilia who died. His second marriage, he had another daughter who he named Cecilia who died. And the third marriage, he named his daughter Cecilia. So it's very fascinating. There's, that's kind of a psychoanalyst um, on a case study. John Warden, you might be interested in that. <laughs> it's just, you know, but fascinating that he named three daughters from three successive marriages the same name. Um, so here's the older, um, you can see the older brother off to the right, standing up, kind of in an elevated, uh, more superior position, very proper, very well-dressed, looking down condescendingly on his, and judgmentally on his younger brother, and on his dad. And you see the younger son, obviously in rags, uh, tattered clothing, and uh, left foot bare because of sandal that's been tattered. And then the father, who is in this richly ornamented robe. But what you can't see from this distance is the emphasis on the eyes. The eyes are somewhat closed. At this point in Rembrandt's life, he was semi-blind. But art critics have also said, when you look at the face, there's a light. It depicts an inner light. And the suggestion is that Rembrandt had discovered again something of the good news of the love of the Father. And he was trying to portray this. But he was also trying to portray himself as a younger son in rags because that's how he felt. Very much at the end of his life, he was like a, a pauper, had very little, had lost so much in the way, not just of money, but of family, of children, and of his own soul even. I want to read the story. Um, 
I wonder if, do we have it on, that we could pull it up? Or I'll just read it from the scriptures. Luke 15, you're familiar with the story. It's very familiar. I just want to say a few words about it in reflection. From the three positions of the younger son, the elder son, and the father. This is called classically the, the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. But really, it's a story of the prodigal family. Prodigal means lavish, excessive. And you could say that there's some excess in all three of the players, the younger, the older son, as well as the father. Let me read it. Jesus continued. And remember, this story was in the context in chapter 15 of Luke. He told three successive stories, sort of the lost coin, the lost sheep, lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. But it starts off with this, um, Luke tells us. The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It's in response to that comment that Jesus tells these three parables, the third of which is this. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Then he came to his senses, and when he did this, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and filled with compassion, he ran to him, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother, your, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has, in fact, safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father replied, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. Everything. 
But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Just a few thoughts about the positions, the three players in the story. We probably have done a lot of reflection on being the younger child, the younger son. And this boy, um, young, brash, feeling entitled, says, Dad, effectively, Dad, I wish you were dead. Give me what I deserve. That's the approach and the attitude. And in my younger days, I know that I probably had that attitude in some measure. And as parents, sometimes you see that in your children. There's this attitude of entitlement. Give me what you owe me. But by rights, really, the father doesn't have to give him anything. And the father, by rights, could have disowned his son even for asking him because that is such an affront, such a dishonoring thing for a son to ask in a uh, culture in, in the Middle East, a father to do just that. It's like saying, I wish you were dead. But amazingly, the father complies. And he divides his, what he's in, the son is entitled to and gives it to him. Goes off and squanders it. But note this when he's in the pig pen, when he's feeding pigs, the text says, when he came to his senses. So there's something about some temporary spiritual insanity there, yes? And he realizes, oh my gosh, I don't know how good my father is. There's a forgetting. And maybe even not a forgetting, but not even realizing. Imagine that. All those years living with his dad, but not even knowing the generosity, the compassion, the kindness, the patience and love of the father. But when he's in the dregs, when he's in the pits, that's when he realizes what he has lost and left. So he not only himself is the lost son, he has lost track of his father's great love. And isn't it true that sometimes in the real pits of life, that's when we are most open and most attentive to paying attention to the love of God. When things are going fine, we tell God, oh, you know what, take care of everybody else. Don't bother with me, it's fine. But when the bottom comes out, we say, oh God, help me. Sometimes we even say, oh, God, why me? Right? And, you know, when, when we're in times of crisis, that's when our real theology, what we really believe about God, comes out to the surface. I've heard that there are um, a couple of children here who have experienced cancer. I also know that there's been the pain of not being able to have children and yet longing to have children. On any given Sunday, there's always pain in a gathering of people. And if we're people of faith, it's so easy, isn't it, to be tempted to think, where is God in this? The Sunday after um, 9-11, the title of my sermon is, Where Were You, God? It is very easy to think that God has left us when things go bad. Jesus did not 
promise to exempt us from the life of brokenness that everybody is subject to. He did promise, however, that he, over, he said he overcame the world and he promises to be with us in the world. He also sends us into the world to get dirty with it, not to be separate from it. But in some way, the younger son had an opportunity when he rebelled against his father to discover perhaps for the first time the love, the compassion, and the mercy of the father that he maybe didn't even know to begin with. Isn't that ironic? And, you know, I know, and maybe you know people too, that have grown up in the church. I was one of them. But I did not know the love of Jesus. I went to church every week. You know, I did all the Sunday school drills and getting the memory verses down, all that kind of stuff. I knew the verses. But I didn't know Jesus. I didn't know his love. I had to move away from the church. And I remember sitting across the table from Mike, this fellow that I told you about was our senior pastor that fell from uh, grace. When I was a, a, a college sophomore, and I said, what do you got that I don't? Because I know all the Bible verses and stuff. And he looked me in the eye and he says, you are accepted because of the cross. The cross is enough, as we say. But I didn't know that. So my first thought was, come again? And it's too good to be true. Because all my life I thought you had to scrape and crawl your way into God's favor and then keep that up in order to retain God's favor. That's not the way it works. Grace on God's part is dangerous because we could act like a younger son. Right? We could take it for granted and run out of the house with it. But my point is that sometimes, even in the church, We, we like the fellowship. We like being around other brothers and sisters. We love the community. But when life gets hard and trials come, we think, has God left us? God has not left us. But we're tempted in that direction. That's why it's so important to be in a community because when we can't believe, others can believe on our behalf. Amen? Amen. Like the story in Mark 2 of the paralytic who comes, he's brought by four friends when Jesus saw their collective faith, and that is descriptive of the friend's faith, not the paralytics, but he becomes a beneficiary. So in that, that's an example of others believing on our behalf when we cannot. I wonder, just in fine, final reflection, if any of us feel like the younger son, feel like we've done something in the past or even done something in the recent past, or that we're in currently, we think isn't enough, that the cross is not enough for. I want to remind you that the Father welcomes the Son home. There's always grace, and the cross is enough. There's nothing we could do. There's nothing the Son could do to earn God's love. It was given without cost. The younger son. And then the older son. At any one time, I think this parable can help us to reflect on different positions or different approaches we have. It is tempting for us to be the older son sometimes when we see somebody else in sin or when somebody that has been close to us has betrayed us or somebody who's related to us has turned away from us 
and done things to our parents that we think are greatly dishonoring or done to our heavenly parent, God, and we think they don't deserve mercy and grace. They don't deserve forgiveness. So when the older son sees the father so lovingly welcome the younger boy home, notice his language when, he, when the father invites him to come in. He says, this son of yours took all that you gave him and squandered it, and now you're welcoming me home, and you're killing the fatted calf, the thing that's the calf that's only for the honored guest that's been fattened for days and months and years for the honored guest, and you're treating this son of yours like that? What gives? There's something really crazy and ludicrous about love. But it's easy, and especially if we're on the church when we have been trying to discipline ourselves to live in obedience. I want to leave you with a phrase. Phariseeism, or this attitude of being pure and being holy and being... And there's nothing wrong. We are called to be holy people, as we read this morning. Set apart for God's purposes. But sometimes we skew that, and we think, always living rightly, always living perfectly, making no mistakes. And we're aghast when we sin, when somebody else sin. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe I thought that. I can't believe you thought that. I can't believe you did that. Sometimes spouses say that to each other a lot. But even beyond that, when somebody falls outside the bounds of what we think is appropriate behavior or godly behavior, we immediately jump on them. Right? So how do you balance forgiveness and discipline? And that's a really... It's not clear-cut. It's not black and white. Yet the Scripture gives us clarity, yes. But as you live life longer, you realize life is not all black and white. It's a lot of gray. And what does it mean for us to stay connected to the vine, to express both his mercy and his righteousness? So when we see somebody doing something, or hear somebody doing something, or we ourselves do something or think something that's wrong, it's so easy for us to beat ourselves on the back. We say, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh. Or we exorcise or ostracize the person who has sinned. In our case, um, this fellow I told you, my mentor, who um, had um, a sexualized relationship with one of our women, the irony of this is that um, so he left, and our national board, um, Board of Order Ministry, carries our credentials. So... Mike had to go before our Board of Order Ministry and um, report, and there was a process of accountability and rehabilitation. Here's the part that God was pressing me on. Said, as soon as uh, 06 is when it, um, the stuff hit the fan. I was elected to that board um, in uh, 2008. And what happens is that um, the people who have some kind of a moral failure have to come back to the board several times. So on one occasion, I was sitting as a board member knowing that he was coming. And God was pressing into me, saying, son, are you going to be the father, the prodigal father, or are you going to be the elder son? Yes, he did wrong. Yes, there was appropriate judgment and consequence. But will you extend forgiveness? And I confess I'm still in the process of doing that because it's a long journey. But the father invites the older son to come and celebrate and to express the same heart that he does. So this parable, 
And parables are meant not just to tell a story. Parables are meant to pull us in and engage us and get us to kind of stew on it, think on it, and chew on what's being taught. It's not meant to just give us information and we walk away. It's meant to haunt us. And I hope this haunts us because this is the nature of this crazy parable of God's love. The elder son. Finally, there is the prodigal father. Sometimes we are the erring child. Sometimes we are the judging brother. Sometimes God calls us to be the loving father. Here's a father who has two sons. In effect, he's lost two sons. Two sons that lived under his roof for a lifetime, but did not know him. Because you can tell by the comments of the older brother, I've slaved for you all my life, never doing wrong. And yet, you never gave me a goat, Dad. And yet, when this, in a sneering fashion, this son of yours comes home, you give him the fatted calf? What gives? So there was unfortunate distance between the older brother and the son, as well as between the brothers. This, you could say this family is somewhat dysfunctional. But the father models a grace of the heavenly father, yes? A grace is unheard of. Again, by rights, the father could have just dismissed the younger son acting like he didn't live. Had a funeral for him and be done with it. But it's amazing that what he does instead, this son that is full of the stench of the pig pen. And you can only imagine what a pig pen's like. If you've ever been near it, it, they're not pleasant. But as the son comes, rehearsing his speech, I'm no longer worthy. The father runs to him, lifting up his long robes, loses all sense of dignity, and comes and holds him. Holds him in his chest. I want to speak to him for a moment to the parents. What's lovely is that having these kids here, and as um, our sister said, we hope that you will come to know Jesus as we model him. But parents, when your child does wrong, I'm not saying if, when your child does wrong, this parable invites you to be the loving father. And it will be a challenge. I have two prodigal sons, not just one. David and Jonathan loved Jesus a lot when they were kids. David even, um, one time I remember, he went to a camp, Camp Timberley up in Wisconsin, and came back. He was on fire for God, had his T-shirt says, Man on Fire. And uh, really, like, you know, when I, and so I said, okay, why don't you get up, and we're going to have you share your testimony. And he was preaching it, you know, and all the folks were, wow, man, this kid's great. Okay, he's like nine. That was then. This is now. Both the boys have completely dismissed Jesus in the church. And I confess that it's, especially for my wife, it's caused great pain for us. And we are in a position where we, we're like the waiting father, waiting for our sons to come home. We long for them to come home to Jesus. But we may have to wait for a while. And you know what, parents? There's no guarantees in life that your kids will continue the faith. I don't mean to say that to scare you. I'm just saying this is our experience. And I've talked to enough parents who've been strong Christians, leaders in the church, raised their kids, 
and that doesn't just say that's not doesn't say we should protect them from everything, keep them from the world. We need to hold them by the hand, walk with them into the world, and say, "This is what the world's like." Appropriately, age appropriate, you get it. But we need to help them to know what it means to live in the world, but not be of it. What does it mean to be light and salt in the world, even though everything in the world is counter to them and pushing against them? That's the challenge for us as parents. And I want to say, too, that's not just the parents' role. It's the, the role of the whole church. Because long before Hillary, Hillary Clinton coined the phrase, it takes a village to raise a child, it was true. It takes a whole community to raise children. When I was growing up in the church, my parents came, and then my mom worked on Sunday. My dad fell asleep next to me when Pastor Ted was speaking. I had to nudge him and wake him up. But it was Harry Fujihara, who was our eighth-grade Sunday school teacher, who made such an impression on me. He always said the joy of the Lord. He was the one that picked us boys up at 5 a.m. on Easter Sunday to go to a sunrise service, packed 10 kids in his little Volkswagen Carmen Ghia that only holds six, um, so we went out there, he took us out there, and then he took us to his home where he had hot chocolate and breakfast. But Harry made such an impression on me, I still remember that. Henry and Sarah Sato were pillars of our church. And I remember Sarah in um, a Sunday school class. She taught the fifth grade boys Sunday school class. And this was a time when my mom were kind of bunny heads. And I was like, ah, mom. And on a Mother's Day, Sarah said to us, boys, your mother is the only woman that will ever be your mother. Don't you forget that. And that has stuck with me. I thought, oh, man, it's a rebuke from the prophet Sarah, you know. <laughs> you better listen. But that was a good word for me, and it kept me in good stead. So it took more than just my parents, who were not as acquainted with Jesus as Harry, Harry and, and Sarah, to keep me following Jesus. So all of us are responsible, not just for our own kids, but for other kids, when we're, even if we're not married, we have an investment to make in the little ones because they will look to us. And you know what? Funny thing. We could say the exact same things that the, their parents would say. And you know what? They'll listen to you. <laughs> you ever seen that dynamic at work? I see lots of nodding heads. But that's why if we're all connected to Jesus, all trying to live by faith, then we can be reinforcers. Not that we're, well, I guess we are in a kind of a gracious conspiracy, but we're trying to help nurture our kids in the way of faith. But it takes all of us to do that. You know the parable, if you teach a child the way that he should go when he's a child, when he is old, he'll not depart from it. That's what we're holding on to. We're praying that. And some of Jesus, I mean, uh, David's uh, older mentors have been reassuring us of that. So I want to encourage you parents to make sure that you're investing time in your children. Don't just be busy taking them from one soccer thing or tennis thing or piano lessons or whatever. Make time to spend with them. And even it's one-on-one. Um, I, I think uh, I've had friends have dates with each of their children on a regular basis. And even when they have strayed, there's such a good relationship. We're very thankful for our boys. We have a very open relationship with them. Um, and, and we even pray at meals. And um, our younger one has acne's broken out and his mom offered to pray for him and then he said well dad can join us too so yes we pray for the acne that it would go away but we also pray for many other things so every night uh, when i'm at home the three is sue jonathan and myself and then elijah jumps in the bed too and we'll pray he doesn't pray but we pray you know <laughs> we pray 
for many of the things in our hearts, and it's beyond just the acne. Um, and sometimes it's spending time with our children is kind of like spending time with God. We're not sure what to say or what to do. Don't, don't worry about the thing being perfect. You don't have to have this deep conversation all the time. You know, and boys are different from girls. Boys, you've got to do something with them, and as you're doing something, they'll talk to you. Girls, you can have a cup of tea, a tea party, and they'll talk to you directly, you know. But I want to encourage you dads especially, make sure you spend time with your kids. Don't let that be just to mom. There's an investment that you're making that will carry you in the long term. And just to kind of illustrate the point, you know, we read earlier, um, one thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That, that verse really got me, and I thought about that in terms of being a dad. I've learned a lot about God's fatherhood by being a father myself. And I want to read an excerpt from this little book. I found this a few months ago. It's David's book, David Stewart Kim, and it's a book that Sue and I set apart. There's only one entry because we forgot to give it to David, but this, we, we want to write this when he was a baby and then give it to him when he was older. Um, so I'm going to read just a little excerpt of this, just keep in mind of the time. Good Friday, April 17th, 1992. My dear David, your mother and I wanted to write something to you on your first birthday. Um, Here it is months later, and we still haven't written you on your first birthday. He's born in September. And I actually read this to David. He was in Boston. I read this to David over the phone, and there was this wonderful silence. It's almost like we lived this as adults. I have just put you to bed after a delightful and very special time with you. Mom is babysitting. So it was just you and me tonight. In fact, it's the third night in a row that I've put you to bed without mom being here. Last night, we had a Monday, Thursday supper at church. I brought you home, showered you, and put you to bed. I let you stay for the service. The night before last, mom went to another gathering. But tonight was a very special time for you and me. So I'm inspired to write this for you, to read to you when you're older. Tonight... I had you facing me on my lap. We sat together as I talked to you and looked at you longer and more intently than I think I ever have. He was very active as a child. For him to sit still for a 20-minute period was very, very unusual. I think miraculous. You put your right index finger on my nose, and I pivoted on your finger back and forth and cocked my head from side to side. You got the biggest kick out of that, laughing repeatedly as we did it over and over again. You then pressed your nose to my forehead and and forehead to mine, and we looked at each other through crossed eyes. It was great fun. I so enjoyed just being with you tonight. I'm preaching on Easter Sunday, but need to prepare. But being with you was so delightful, I didn't want to leave. I didn't want it to end. We sat talking and praying together for about playing together for 20 minutes. When I put you down to bed after our night-night routine, and we did this routine where we go around to all the pictures and um, balloons in the room and stuff. He said, good night to everybody, you know, everything. Um, I put you to bed and you did not fuss. You were very peaceful. As I said, left, I said, good night, night-night. And you looked at me, got up, and opened your, closed your hand. As I closed the door, my heart was so grateful to God. I was and am so thankful to have you as my son and to have had such a special time with you tonight. 
I noticed and enjoyed you tonight perhaps more than ever before or at least for a long time. See, I gazed. We gazed at each other. We savored each other's presence. And that's what God longs for us, to sit and savor each other's presence. And this is what I experienced with my son. You are very energetic and athletic. You want to conquer every physical challenge you can. You love to climb on the sofa and get up on the, on the side, not the front, but the side. We have a ledge, and he wanted to climb on the back of that too. David, you are a delightful little boy, and I'm so glad to be your father. I hope and pray that God will continue to grow you into a young man who grows into an old man, all the while loving the Lord Jesus. May his spirit continue even now to acquaint you with Jesus as your, older, your elder brother and Lord. And may you have the character of Jesus, gracious and godly. I love you very much, son. That is a kind of a reference point for us. David knows that I love him. And it just took a little time, 20 minutes, to sit gazing into each other's eyes. That's the love of the Father. I learned that, gazing into my son's eyes, delighting in him and he in me. That's what our Father longs for us. And that, when life goes sour, it will keep us in good stead. That is what keep, will keep our children connected to us and to Jesus even when the bottom falls out. God is good all the time. Amen. Even we're tempted to not believe that's true. In a few moments, we're going to come to the table of the Lord where we will remember again the Lord's death and, to, and proclaim it until he returns. Let's just pray as we end here and transition to the table of Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've given us the great gift of your son, of yourself. And Father, we thank you for your son, your only child you gave us. We bless you because you have given us out of the riches of your mercy and grace. You who rejected by us, we turned away from you, and yet you came pursuing us. You who were the waiting father, waiting for us to come home. You who were the prodigal father who gives so recklessly, so lavishly, so crazily, such crazy love you have for us. As we come to the table of the Lord, we pray that we receive these gifts as your gifts to us. Hear the words of Paul as he reminds us what this act means. For I receive from the Lord this gift. What I receive, I also pass on to you. The 
Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is my blood of the new covenant. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for these gifts you've given us. We ask that you would send your Holy Spirit, that we together would know the unity of being with you, the communion and participating in your body that these give us. Be here, we pray, in this meal. And as we receive, we ask that you would strengthen, refresh, and bless us for the journey that we're on to be faithful to Jesus Christ until he returns. Hear our prayer, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Turn to the left on this way.